Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Chris, today we're blessed to welcome on the program, Catherine Knight Sontag. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. Catherine, we had your husband on, Bob, a couple weeks ago. And what he didn't know is this was just part of our evil plan (laughs) to get to you. (laughs) Well, it worked. He was great. We loved having Bob on and uh, we've had some great follow-up conversations with him on our little group chats and stuff. And it's been neat getting to know him and uh, a little bit about his his art and his pursuits. We're happy to have you on, and hopefully we can have that same follow-up conversation from here on out. It's been, it's been really fruitful for all of us, right, Chris? Yeah, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. And say hello to Bob. I will. So, Catherine, you wrote a book this last year, 2022, The Mother Tree. And prior to that, in 2019, you wrote a collection of, of poetry called, the is it The Tree at the Center? Is that what it's called? It is. Uh-huh. Okay. So this has been a fairly recent pursuit for you, but uh, have you always been interested in writing? I have. I actually began writing poetry at a very young age in um, elementary school, actually, and entered contests and sort of found that to be the best way that I could really express myself creatively. So yeah, it's been sort of a beautiful return at this point in my life to come back to poetry. And you pursued a degree in English, I saw in your in your background. English and environmental studies. I did a double, double degree. Yep. Great. Well, we're going to ask you lots of questions about your book, but before we get started, I, I guess maybe the prelude to learning a little bit about your background and why you wrote this most recent book, The Mother Tree, would be to just give us a little bit of your background and story and, and what moved you to uh, write this book. Yeah, so it's been a few years in the making. I fell in love with the natural world as a very young child and spent a lot of time in the mountains I love to hike and to be in the canyon near my home in Salt Lake City and really had some incredible experiences there, feeling connected to God in a very unique and intimate way. You know, over the course of going to school, graduating, going on a mission to Italy, coming back, getting married, there were lots of key moments in my life that connected these kind of spiritual encounters in the mountains, in nature to this larger yearning I had for a more, perhaps a more concrete sense of self that was rooted in a divine source. And when I became pregnant with my first child was when I really began to sense the lack of a divine feminine figure or source in my life. And it became really necessary at that time for me to access it and to understand it, not only for myself, but 
for a greater understanding of the world and my own spiritual paradigm and the way that I was able to relate to this new dimension of motherhood that was unfolding before me, something that was very unexpected in a lot of ways. Pregnancy obviously comes with expected changes. You have a lot of physical changes, mental changes, emotional changes happening, but there was a degree to which I was feeling myself become like an embodied symbol. There was something about the process of, of carrying a child and bringing a soul from one dimension to another that wasn't just about me. It was a very archetypal process and passage. And I wanted to understand what that meant on a grander scale and a very intimate scale as well. You must consider yourself a contemplative or that's your nature, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more introverted. And the way that I get to sort of mm, what matters to me is, is through that process of contemplation. Yeah. And that whole connection with nature, when did you put together that conceptualization of what you were experiencing in nature as something more than just a walk in the woods? Was it during the pregnancy? You know, it was much earlier. I had a few pretty difficult experiences in high school with someone I loved deeply who went through a very traumatic time. And we had spent a lot of time together in a specific canyon in Salt Lake City. And so I would return there on my own in a lot of agony. And I want to say there were two or three moments um, when I was there alone in solitude, really pleading and really um, in deep pain that I was able to get this sense of being part of a larger whole and being deeply seen and loved that I had never experienced before and was very hard to articulate what that was. And it felt deeply intimate, like I was rediscovering a part of myself, almost this sense of kinship with everything around me. So very personal, very intimate, but also sort of, this is something beyond my capacity to even understand. It's so interesting to me when people describe these experiences with nature and inevitably there's a sense of religious awe that comes out of that or wonder. You think about all the experiences contained in scriptures or even in the restoration history of, of people that have found their answers or their connection to God or deep spiritual experiences while in nature. And yet you don't hear too much about that where someone was, you know, just maybe hanging, excuse me, hanging out in the, in a, in a building and having that same experience, right? Um, I mean, temples might be the, the exception to that, but I think it's much more common for people to connect with their spiritual side in, in God's creation out in nature. That seems like it could be a whole discussion on its own. I'm not sure there's a question in there, but yeah, Chris. You know, I have, as Riley knows this, Catherine, I, I grew up in between the East Coast of the United States and in the Caribbean in Venezuela. And I, so I spent a lot of time in the woods on the East Coast and in the tropical rainforest in Venezuela as a child. And I can tell you, in fact, I remember once in Houston, just well, north of Houston, I went north of Houston away from the city to go for a walk in the woods. And I was brought to my knees by the experience of being in the woods. It's not that I said, oh, I'm in the woods, I should pray. No. That wasn't active. I wasn't praying, but I was brought to my knees just by being in the woods. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love this phrase you used, Catherine, embodied symbol, when you were describing your early pregnancy. Tell us a little bit more about that. I, I love that uh, imagery. 
So another love that I've had for a very long time is the symbol of the tree of life. So I remember I talk about this in in both books, I believe, from a very young age, really being drawn in by that symbol. Like it felt very alive to me and resonant. And I also felt like there was an aspect to it that I I didn't grasp. There was something about it that was real and alive and pulsating and calling to me, but I didn't know really what it was. And it sort of followed me. When I was very young, junior high, I became really enchanted with the Celts. I studied a lot of Celtic tribes and, you know, it was sort of a part of my own genealogy. So it was more intriguing to me in that aspect, but then also just like Arthurian legends and finding the tree symbol there and then continuing to find it repeated throughout space and time was also very intriguing. And so, you know, I finally came back from my mission doing my undergraduate studies and felt very compelled and drawn towards a master's degree in landscape architecture without really knowing what it encompassed. It just felt like the right path. I knew I was very interested in wild spaces for children and the developmental aspect of having children be in these places, connecting with nature and and how on many levels it was just very necessary for their development. But once I got into graduate school, I sort of realized essentially the purpose of my degree for me personally was to re-encounter that image. So I did my thesis on the role of the transcendent in landscapes, and one of the symbols I studied was the Tree of Life. At that time, I was able to see again, even on a grander scale, how this image is repeated, how there's this threefold cosmic ordering within the image, how there's a connection for many peoples and cultures to a divinely feminine figure, so many interesting layers and richness to the image. I feel like this is sort of that Jungian archetype coming to my conscious level at this point. It had been there unconsciously for so long. And finally, at that moment of pregnancy and really feeling like I am the tree, like I am facilitating this journey from one dimension to another was when I really understood for the first time why I had been so drawn to that image. I couldn't understand it fully without the embodied experience. Maybe it's time to talk about the parts of the tree and and how they represent this experience. But first, you know, with Riley saying body and then saying wild, I just remembered a quote from your website that I just love. We are one feather on the body of the wild. What is that, Catherine? (laughs) (laughs) That came out of some writing I did for Utah, actually, for the tourism office. They had put together a whole campaign for 2020, I believe it was 2020. They wanted to to gear their campaign towards women and bringing them into the wild. And so I wrote a piece for them and that was a line out of that piece. So yeah. It's a great line. Thank you. I want to read it again for the listener. We are one feather on the body of the wild. Chris, you had a question that we had talked pre-show a little bit about the three ways of knowing discussed in Catherine's book. Did you want to ask a little bit about that? She mentioned this three levels thing. Yeah. Yeah, they relate to the three parts of the tree. Let's go into that. In my second book, The Mother Tree, there's a diagram at the very beginning of the book that shows the three cosmic levels. So you have the branches above representing a heavenly sphere or a celestial sphere 
the trunk representing the mortal sphere in which we find ourselves, and then the underworld is represented by the root zone. Of course, with symbols and archetypal symbols specifically, there's so many different ways that you can organize the symbolism around those three, those three zones. One way is to look at like the past being the root zone, the present being the trunk, the future being the celestial realm. You can look at different ways of knowing as well. So sort of embodied in or embedded, I should say, in this image is a, a spiritual ascent journey or an internal processing of sort of where you are how you orient in the world. And we can talk about that too later if, if you want. There's another, like a deeper level of, of symbolism, which is the tree is in Axis Mundi. So there's this very real way in which it orients you in space and time. So you have what I would consider more of the intuition of the Shadowlands or the underworld and more of the experiential knowledge that you access as you are in your mortal state and then an imaginal realm of wisdom that you access through the branches to the celestial realm. And of course, these are all in, in relationship, right? We are right now in a mortal sphere, but we have access to the, the realm of the ancestors. We have access to the celestial wisdom above. Catherine, what you're talking about here it reminds me of one of the poems in your book of poems, The Tree at the Center, and this one is called The Center. Mm. And it, I mean, I think this is maybe more of a, it might be a better description of what you're describing than kind of sticking to the analytical terms or whatever. This is more of like a mystical explanation of, I think, what you're talking yeah. about. Would you be interested in reading this poem? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. I think it's on page eight of your your book. Mm -hmm. The center. When the time is right, the deep nudging, that obscure shadow will pull you in ways exact, from sorrow to longing for the ineffable landscape, to that open field just over the last horizon. After the long journey, what you always hoped for, the deepest cavern of mind, with those treasures unnamed and inescapable, resides here at the central point of the clearing. You know it, the axis of absolute reality. It pulls and repels as you circle dusk to dawn until you understand its many iterations. A pillar of light, a totem of ancestors, a tree forever ascending. When you stop orbiting, if you ever do, do you approach the deep humming or do you retreat? If you climb to the top and partake of its fruit, are you consumed? Turned into something else altogether, the alchemy complete. Is our journey here after all to return us to the navel we left? plant our souls in the center, and become another center, interchanging auditorium and stage in the cosmic odium of beholding and being beheld. And finally, you must discern the robed figure beside you in the periphery of stars, whose stirrings you take on as your own. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you, Catherine. Lovely. Thank you. Catherine, what does, what does the poetic worldview, the poet's worldview, add 
to our experience of reality in mm. your experience both as a reader and a writer of poetry i know you you read poetry too we you and i and, and riley are all lovers of rilke mm-hmm. yeah poetry for me is really that creative space that bridges the gap between the seen and the unseen you know the the process of writing poetry for me enters into that celestial wisdom space it's imaginal it's the way that we we have these different aspects of ourselves come together the experiences we have in our body the experiences we have in our mind in our heart in our emotional spheres it's a way to alchemize it something arises and emerges from it that we could never access in any other way so it's deeply mystical to me the the process of writing poetry in that sense it can be sort of terrifying <laughs> like i don't sit down to write a poem unless i'm you know sometimes i play with form but mostly it's free verse i have no idea what's going to happen i have no idea what's going to come the lines are there in the moment you know it's a process i don't understand i know there's tools and there's skills to develop and there's process and there's practice but ultimately in that work i feel the most divinely centered the most divinely like place to receive knowledge that i could never never come up with on my own as riley put it it sounds contemplative you know i met a bangladeshi poet the other day and we were talking about this and where do poems come from i remember meeting a painter at an art gallery once and asking her where her ideas came from and she said there's a river that flows beneath us all i just dip into it. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, so this poet I met was telling me it's just about observing, right? And talking about form again, we don't have to have, you know, rhyme and meter. There's something that makes a poem a poem that has nothing to do with that. It's the feeling, right? It's that mystical feeling that you mentioned. It does something to us, you know, any prose is propositional, it's speaking to our intellects, you know, to our rational ability, our ratiocination, but a poem goes straight to the heart. Ben and I mentioned on our Come Follow Me podcast, a lot of the Bible is written in poetry, and that poetry is lost when it's not taken into account. When the translator isn't aware and intentional about bringing that into English or whatever language you're reading. Mm -hmm. Well, even worse, Chris, is when you try to move something that's in poetry and you translate it and it comes out just sounding like prose and then we take it literally. That's like a double whammy. (laughs) Twice removed, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like two degrees removed from the intent. What is so difficult about describing the power of poetry is that same thing. We're trying to translate the ineffable into effable or something along those lines where it makes no sense outside the context of the poem itself. Catherine, you mentioned the imaginal realm where this poetry comes from. Mm. Can I say it that way? Yeah. <laughs> that that realm, you know, first, I, I'd like to ask you to distinguish between imaginal and imaginary, lest anyone get the wrong idea. Yeah. So this is a concept that I came across when I was looking at the tree symbol, I believe for my thesis. And it was in a book written by Roger Cook, it's very old. I want to say from the 70s or 60s, well, at least old for this topic. I'm from the 60s. <laughs> I'm from the 70s. <laughs> so, well, it goes through many iterations, I guess, of the tree, different ways that you can approach it. 
And one way is an imaginal, a source of imagination or access to the imaginal realm, which we have to distinguish between imaginal and imaginary. Imaginary being sort of what you can conjure, what you can make up in your mind, sort of anything you can think of and create. Imaginal being more a very real plane of experience and understanding that makes connection between our spiritual self and our material self possible. In my sort of LDS traditional context, it's also for me more of a realm of faith. It's the way that I I think of having an eye of faith. You're not creating something out of nothing. You are an embodied individual with experiences, with a background, with a genetic history, with all of this chemical information, and you are all of these different moving parts and iterations. And that informs so much of your ability to look forward or look backwards or even be in the moment and understand to a deeper degree what it means to be you and what that means in context of all of creation. So that ability to sort of be present in the moment and accessing these different realms for me is what the imaginal realm facilitates that makes sense. I'd like to attempt an illustration of the difference between the imaginal and the imaginary. The imaginary, as you mentioned, we conjure, right? If we know what a horse is and we don't know what a horn is, we can put a horn on a horse, right? Now we have a unicorn. Yeah. That's imaginary. Mm -hmm. But the imaginal realm is where that idea comes from, right? And it's the feeling or the meaning that's behind that image and what that means to us, right? Yeah, yeah. You mentioned faith, you know, the the imaginal realm for you being the realm of faith. There's another quote in your book, The Mother Tree, that really struck me. You, You wrote, faith is defined as the ecstatic space between the realized and the yet to be. Could you go into that a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. That's like poetry. I don't know how to. <laughs> well, it wasn't in a poem, so I felt like I could ask. Yeah, I'm just teasing. Yeah, it, I, I mean, it feels to me like the space where, like if you're weaving a rug, perhaps you know generally the pattern, or you have the threads, or you have a vision of what the rug eventually will be or the tapestry will be but you haven't yet finished it. You haven't yet actually done the work of putting together like your mind, perhaps or your heart has gone down a certain path to a certain point, but then there's the abyss, right? There's the unknown. So this ecstatic space is the space where there's the energy, there's the life, there's the faith, there's the very real materiality. And maybe it's not the actual thing, but the beingness almost is there. It's reaching out, it's extending. Faith is the courage and the love and the the eye that enables that completion. Does the ecstatic for you mean in this context, right? Does it mean something like we are embodied materially, right? And if we're accessing the imaginal realm, then in some sense, we have to go outside of ourselves. Is that what you mean by ecstatic? To access that other realm, we have to, in some sense, leave ourselves. To a degree, to a degree. Yeah, it's also, I think, the relationship. It's like the coming up against. It's like what happens when these two things come together. Like, it feels very energetic Poetry. to me. Yeah, yeah. And you don't really know. You don't really know what's going to come to fruition from that exchange necessarily. I had a, a bit of a definition in my book, if that's helpful. 
for the imaginal realm. Yes, of course. I talk a bit about Islamic mystics and their recognition of this plane, and they call it the world of image or the world of imagination. They believed it to be an intermediary realm existing between and interpenetrating the realms of intellect and sense perception, the plane between the physical material world and the spiritual world. According to this definition, imagination is the central means of the soul by which the senses and intellect, mind and body, spirit and matter are able to interrelate. This relates to the famed Alam al-Mithal, which I, I say famed because it's in Dune, and now we have a new Dune movie, right? Frank Herbert wrote about, well, Sufism, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He wrote about mysticism, and his influences were clearly, at least one of them was Sufism, maybe Zen Buddhism. Catherine, I want to I want to jump back into uh, your book, The Mother Tree. And in the opening chapter, you talk about this experience you had following a uh, tragic miscarriage where you went back into nature. And as you were, were grounded beneath a, I believe it was a crabapple tree. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. You, you had sort of this ecstatic, visionary experience that catalyzed your faith to move forward from that tragedy and see a burgeoning future in that um, that involved more mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you talked about early how you didn't really have that connection with the divine feminine and then following that experience, how it opened up that channel of communication between you and the divine mother. Talk about that experience a little bit because it involves that that symbolism you brought to play in your description of the three levels of the tree and how you kind of experience those in in a moment. Yeah, yeah. The experience was similar to to other experiences, the the one that I mentioned from high school going up into the mountains. It was similar in the sense that I needed something that was beyond words. Like I needed a degree of like comfort and acknowledgement that didn't require me to enter into like a verbal I could barely talk about it. Like I couldn't pray about it. I didn't want to communicate about it in that way. And the tree in our front yard has sort of become, I mean, it's the tree that we see from our kitchen. It's the tree that becomes filled with chickadees. And seasonally, we have all the different birds, the cedar waxwings, the robins. You watch the cycles. You see the fruit come, the fruit stay, the fruit feeds all of the, the birds in wintertime. Just the whole the whole cycle is in that tree. And I felt a connection to it as an individual tree. And then also had a very similar experience there that I did in the canyon, which was just a sense that I was seen and known and that there was an exchange between me this time and that very specific tree, that there was an acknowledgement of presence and that deep sense that everything is, and therefore everything is okay. A deep sense of comfort and peace in just the reality that everything is, and that's enough. That the experience I had miscarrying was beautiful (laughs) in the sense that I experienced it, that it was part of my growth and my maturity and my heartbreak and embracing like the beauty and the opening and the softening that comes with heartbreak and the surrender that 
I feel in the natural world. I feel deeply that the natural world is in a state of acceptance that we are as humans here to learn from. So yeah, it was a very profound moment in the sense that I had been doing like, this research about the tree and then I was having this very real moment, <laughs> having to sort of test my own ideas about things and, and really, really come to understand in a new way, in a deeper way, the power of the symbol of the tree. In my experience with trees, Catherine, I've had the sense, the very real sense that they're communicating with me mm. and with each other. Mm -hmm. I remember reading in the opening of your book a more scientific version of this. I mean, these trees really are communicating, and most of it's happening underground. I saw it in the crown, right? I saw the, the branches reaching out and touching one another, and I heard the trees. I don't speak tree. I can't actually interpret unless I were to write a poem or something, but I know they're talking to me. Yeah, yeah. This is not at all intended to be a pun, but when I listen to your experience, when I think about my own, these are experiences of rootedness. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And understanding the shadow work associated with the roots, I think, is something that is there. I mean, it's an archetype, right? Like, even if you look at Joseph Campbell and the cycle of the hero, and then you have more modern scholars who are doing sort of a feminine or like a, a heroine's journey, you see this very real need of descent and decay and destruction in order to regenerate and to be reborn. So yeah, that experience was that. It was that experience of letting go and allowing myself spiritually and emotionally to sort of let the dark be my guide and trust that it would bring me to a new iteration of myself and the world that was even more fulfilling and even more beautiful and even more filled with understanding. Catherine, in a prior episode we had just uh, a month or so ago with Jana Johnson Spangler, she reminded me, just like you have again, that uh, it seems to me that women are more connected to the idea of the descent as a necessary step in the progression. When you were speaking, I was reminded of, of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And it just kind of came to my mind that rod and staff both originate from trees. You know, it's sort of a reconnection again to that same symbol or image of the tree that you connected with. Tell us a little bit about the importance of descent from your point of view in the full integration and progression of a human being. This is a topic that's deeply needed. Uh, it's something that I think as a culture, and I'll speak, you know, specifically to like the American culture is something that we lack and we desperately need, which is this ability to sit with our pain, to fully experience it instead of running from it, numbing ourselves wallowing in it, being victimized, whatever it is, like there's a real unhealthy relationship we have with pain. And Christ, for me, is our point of connection to this, like the need for it, the purpose of it, and the need to fully surrender to it. Going down into that shadow land, going down into the chaos is absolutely necessary for any sort of progression that is lasting. You know, I talk about this in the book quite a bit, that Christ, for me, is this perfect 
combination, integration of masculine and feminine qualities and energies. He is our real example. He is the example of what it means to fully complete that descent and come out the other side. And so it's been the feminine understanding that has allowed me to see that in Christ. It's been reading stories such as the descent of Inanna and all of these goddesses from ancient Gilgamesh, so many different iterations of the same story that have helped me see, okay, this is Christ doing this work and showing us how we each need to also complete our descents. And the feminine aspect of it allows us also to realize that it's cyclical, right? That there's this way in which we don't just descend once. We don't just face our pain or our trauma once. We have to be okay with this repetition of it, of going down into the root zone. The tree is such a beautiful, rich image in this regard because the roots represent the ancestors. The roots represent those who have come before us, their wisdom and knowledge. The soil is rich. It's alive. It's not dead. The only thing threatening about the darkness, right, is the sense of the unknown. And I think that's something that we struggle with, men and women, is chaos. It's a very feminine trait, traditionally, that, you know, you see it as an archetype being ascribed to the feminine in a very patriarchal world, a world in which we really value production and being very busy all the time, very linear. It's hard for us sometimes to be comfortable with what can feel like death what feels like a death of a part of ourselves. We're not structured even just in like society, how we run our lives, our daily schedules, larger lack of ceremony and ritual and community engagement in these sorts of processes makes it very difficult for us to feel perhaps a sense of security approaching it or, or there's no one really <laughs> out there religiously or secularly saying this is a healthy way to move forward, but yet it is. And at the same time, it's really beautiful to see how there is this rising, I want to say feminine consciousness that is asking for us to do that work, not only to save ourselves, but to save the planet. Like it's becoming very necessary to engage with the feminine in healthy ways. I'm reminded by by what you say of the of Greek tragedy mm. and the the purpose that it played in a community. Yeah. Uh, in that way that's something we could really bring back when it comes to theater and you know to see this kind of catabasis, the catastrophe, right? The tragedy. And I'm reminded of a quote from your book again from The Mother Tree. You wrote the work of the roots speaks to the hidden mysteries that unfold in the dark. They remind us that the dark is alive. We all need to make a descent to make the ascent. Everybody wants to make an ascent, but it just doesn't fit social media to be in a descent, right? You have to be in an ascent always. <laughs> yeah. But you have to have that moment. Spiritual awakening begins with, Mi ritrovai per una salva oscura, right? I found myself in a dark wood mm -hmm. midway through our life, right? Mm -hmm. Where am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? Yeah. What's happening to me, right? It's That's the moment that the ascent begins. It's only after we've made that descent. The whole of Dante's comedy, it starts off with this descent through hell. Mm -hmm. The point of which, don't stop reading there, the point of which is to make the ascent up Mount Purgatory mm -hmm. and up to the Imperium, right, with God. Yeah. But Chris, you ask anybody, Nobody wants to descend into pain and chaos. And maybe that's it. It's pain avoidance. It's darkness avoidance. Like, it's not something anyone wants to do, but it's the thing that's good for everyone. 
Catherine, you pointed to Christ as the ultimate symbol of integrated divine masculine and feminine because he descended and ascended both. Chris, the, the Gilgamesh epic, same thing. I, I think of Jonah. There's a symbolic descent, not only into the belly of the well, but into the, the depths where he was compassed about by weeds and, and felt like he was nigh unto death at that point. He was under the foundations of the earth. Yeah. Only to ascend out again and then descend again. And he, he drops into another deep depression after testifying to the Ninevites and watches a gourd. That's a tree, folks. Shrivel and die as a symbol of his own sort of ego death in this process. And again, it's not something anyone wants. And, and so maybe it's this inherent human tendency to want to avoid pain that keeps us from that growth process. I thought of the Gilgamesh because he, as Catherine put it, comes out the other side, right? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't just ascend. He comes out the other side. We're all hoping for that. Yeah. There is another side. You will come out the other side if you persist. Yeah. If you resist, that's different, right? Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about power and control. Well, not a lot, enough in the book. And I think that for me is the heart of it is... There's this very real human tendency that we all have to want to control our narrative, to control where we are, who we're interacting with, what our life is looking like. We want to know. We want to know what the next step is. We want to know where we're going. We want to have answers. Everyone has that side to them, right? But what Christ is asking us to do, what the mother is asking us to do is to let go. And I think that's very scary for people because it's trusting that there is a higher power. It's trusting that there is a divine self that will manifest. It's trusting you have to love yourself enough to let that process unfold. Like you can't go into that process with self-loathing. And how many of us have deep self-loathing? I mean, it's real. It's a real monster. And so part of this becoming a new creature in Christ is going down, coming up, going down deeper, coming up higher, going down even deeper and coming up. That is how we build trust. That is how God trusts us and how we build our trust in God. It feels very counterintuitive, but that's just the process of growth and transformation is being broken open, having our hearts open and broken in order to incorporate new light and new truth. And to realize like Joseph Smith did that if you are going to lead someone else towards salvation, you have to stretch to the highest heavens and consider the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss. You're bringing to mind this, this thought that I've got that perhaps the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ has more to do with enabling us to be able to lift others up through the experiences of our pain and in our depths. So what you're saying is, you know, this process of going down and coming back up and going down deeper and coming back up, there's reasons for that. We, we want to always, you know, assign some kind of reason for our pain. Well, if you need one, here's one. It allows you to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need. Yes. How can you do that if you've never experienced it? Yes. I'm one of those people who just had sort of a charmed life pretty much. I mean, in my adulthood, at least, I, I've never really encountered hard tragedies 
the toughest thing I ever faced was a surprising job loss right when I had my twins and my fifth and sixth children and I'm staring at a mortgage and, you know, all the uncertainty that comes with losing a job. And it caused me so much internal physical damage that I, I don't think my heart, like from a physical standpoint, has ever fully recovered from. I was having palpitations and murmurs couldn't sleep at all, just seriously stressed out and high anxiety. And that catalyzed me to, you know, fix the problem because that's what I do. I'm a man, you know, mm. <laughs> I got to do this. And I didn't ever deal with it in the moment and, and let it hurt. And I was always trying to fix it. The fixing happened so fast that I'm not sure I ever fully integrated that pain. But one thing it did teach me for sure is that pain helps me to relate to other people going through things. And I could comfort someone who had been through similar circumstances, even though there's people who have been through much worse. I am so scared of what the next descent is going to bring because that one, it was very shallow, but it hurt a lot. Mm. And so it, there's a lot of fear associated with descent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how your your story of this harrowing of hell you went through is is your idea of a charmed life no 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 i mean i'm saying like if that's the worst thing that ever happens to me then it's pretty charmed you know what i'm saying like, no yeah it's part of it i'm reminded of kohelet you know ecclesiastes the poet who tells us that joy encompasses all of that right it's not binary like happiness you speak of of your life as joyful because you realize that that's part of it, right? That's part of joy. That's part of life. That's just how it goes. Well, and I tell people now, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Like, And I would go through it again to come out where I am now for sure, 100%. Because not only did my life end up better from all the other, you know, kind of day-to-day -day considerations, but it, it gave me expanded abilities. And I, I again, I think that relates to the atonement in some ways, in the way that God uses us as their vehicle for bringing the love of God into the hearts of their children. Yeah, absolutely. I have that quote if you... Yeah, let's hear it. Thy mind, if thou would lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse. Thou must commune with God. From the crown to the root. Yeah. One thing that you do, Catherine, that I appreciate is you you neuter these quotes in some respect. You allow people who are hearing it or reading it to see themselves in it without exclusivity. Hmm. You did the same thing in, in your book with the James quote that is famous in LDS circles, James 1, 4, 5. And I, I just appreciate that because I, it's very easy for me as, as a man to read these things and see everyone in it because I see myself in it. But you have a, a sixth sense for making that possible for all people. And I just I recognize it and appreciate it. Thank you. That's the poetic perspective, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. The gift of poetry. What you were saying, Riley, about connecting to other people who are suffering through our descents reminded me of the Ross Gay quote that I have in the book. I just wanted to read that quickly. Is sorrow the true wild? And if it is, and if we join them, your wild to mine, what's that? For joining too is a kind of annihilation. What if we joined our sorrows, I'm saying? I'm saying, what if that is joy? I have a hard time reading that quote. It really gets to me every time. 
that is what I learned going through these hard experiences. Like the one I mentioned from high school, going up to the mountains when my friend was was injured and really not doing well. There was a woman in my ward at that time whose husband was on a motorcycle, got hit and sustained really severe traumatic brain injuries and was never the same. And I connected with her in a way I would never have been able to had I not been in a really dark place. My love for her is a complete gift. Its source is not me. Like the heart of Zion for me is that quote by Ross Gay. Like if we really joined our sorrows, if we really entrusted each other with our deepest pain, I mean, that would be seeing God in everyone, right? That would be treating each other as we would want to be treated, but also as God, right? Because we entrust all our pain to God, or that's at least our aspiration, I think. I think our hearts really do want that. I think we really do want to to trust God with all of ourselves. If we really did that, we enter into that alchemized world, we enter into that visionary world, we enter into that imaginal world, and our sorrow is turned to joy. And it's not just about, oh, you know, if we do this, then we'll be joyful. It's no, if you actually connect with each other and entrust your heart and your soul to someone else and share the pain, like it's the sharing that turns it into joy. It's the sharing that annihilates the pain and turns it into joy. And I felt that. I felt that joy of like, we're in this together. We're in the dark root zone. We're here. We're working this out. We're in the pain. And how that connects you, nothing else can connect you like that. The poet you read reminded me of another consummate poet, the 13th century Muslim mystic who happens to be the best-selling poet in America today, go figure, Rumi, Mm -hmm. who wrote, Come, come, whoever you are. Wander, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, even if you've broken your vow a hundred times. Come, come again, come. One of my favorites. Thank you. Catherine, I want to kind of speak to a feeling of vulnerability I had when I was reading your work and maybe have you address this or speak to it a little bit more in depth. And that is that as you were speaking about these characteristics or attributes of the divine masculine and divine feminine, as a male reading this, I got a sense for the welling up of my ego. Mm. I felt like I was doing some shadow work just in reading it because I could I could observe my emotions. Anyone reading the book is going, from my perspective, men reading the book are going to feel this way because of the context of our cultures and how we've been raised and the inheritance that we have from centuries or millennia of masculinity and patriarchy being the dominant paradigm in society. I'm going to leave the details to the reader. I want them to read your book. I want them to feel something of what I felt. But I want you to speak to the idea that there is hope (laughs) Mm -hmm. for men Mm -hmm. and for masculinity. What do you see as the positive attributes of divine masculinity or a mature masculine? And and is there any hope for patriarchs and patriarchy at all? Okay. You might have to remind me as we go of the individual questions, but 
You know, I really wanted to approach the subject with as much care as I could because I knew that it would be potentially difficult for a lot of individuals. I really tried to keep the framing as masculine and feminine, not male and female, not men and women. I have masculine aspects and masculine parts of myself as well as feminine, and every individual does. It's part of the sets of opposites that we encounter in the mortal world that Nephi talks about in the Book of Mormon, having all of those differences and polarizations are part of what helps us understand what is right, what is wrong, what is good, how to navigate, how to orient, how to harmonize, what it means to be out of harmony. So all of those elements are are part of this world and how we interface and grow. As you mentioned, for our world at least, (laughs) a source of deep discord and conflict has been those aspects being deeply out of balance. You know, you can talk about the beginnings of patriarchy and look at the history in terms of patriarchy beginning as a way in which people organize themselves culturally and as societies, having lineage passed down from father to son, having eventually property and land passed down for many peoples, not all, in that sort of pattern. And then you can talk about patriarchy as a sort of an approach to the world, which is what I talk about mostly in the book, which is that idea that masculine is more important. You know, there's lots of different descriptors, but this idea of like activity and linear flow, more aggression, more power and and order, all of those things, the the things that are opposite from the feminine, which I describe more in detail in this book, have sort of risen to the top in terms of what's important and subdued or belittled everything else that is feminine. And so that imbalance has been very harming for men and women, for everyone, however you identify, imbalance is harmful. There could have been a world perhaps in which the feminine was largely dominant, but I don't think so, just by nature of <laughs> of what they represent. So it's a deep wound for men and women, right? But in different ways. Looking at the tree of life, looking at the mother as a guide, first and foremost, for me, is very necessary for the healing of the masculine and feminine self, because the mother is the one who brings back just the idea that balance is necessary, just the idea that interconnection is the actual reality, like we're not individuals siloed in our own familial worlds and doing our own thing. Like we have responsibility to our neighbor, we have responsibility to the community in which we we live, human and non-human. That idea of being able to control and to dominate and to do what you see fit with the resources of the world, the mother is never going to entertain those ideas because it's not reality, right? Like we've got two paradigms. We've got Babylon, we've got Zion. I think we know to some degree what Babylon looks like. It's the whore, right? And Zion is essentially like the queen who's been banished to the wilderness. For me, the greatest symbol or sign that Babylon reigns on this earth, that we're in a celestial sphere, is that the feminine is mocked and abused and completely misunderstood. It's very important for us as as followers of Christ, as individuals who profess to love Christ, understand what aspects of ourself 
our feminine, what that looks like, what that means, what it really is, and how to honor it. And I think that in turn will also teach us how to honor the masculine and to understand what that really is and what it looks like in balance, because you can't isolate one without the other, right? This is a process of integration. So it begins with the mother, but like you said, Riley, it ends in harmony, in partnership, and in deep care for those aspects of ourselves and for individuals who identify either as male or female or somewhere on that spectrum. Catherine, you mentioned Christ earlier as an example of a fully integrated being, right? Mm -hmm. In Sufism, we talk about an insanic kamil, right? The perfect human being, or kamil really means complete. The same thing we say about whatever word we're translating perfect in our scriptures, right? Telos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this mystery of conjunction, right? That integrates the masculine, the feminine, heaven and earth, the hieragami, right? We find ourselves in the modern world, I think, in a crisis, and that crisis is from this focus, as you mentioned, on those masculine traits, on quantity as opposed to quality. You know, that's something I know you encountered in your work, Eliada, one of the perennialists mm -hmm. that Riley and I read. There's also René Guénon, who's the founder of, the, of perennialism. He wrote a book, he has two books that speak to this, The Crisis of the Modern World. Right? And then the reign of quantity and the sign of, uh, sign of the times. The reign of quantity is a sign of the times. This is the crisis that we find ourselves in that you speak to. My final comment about what you just said is I'm a full-time stay-at-home homeschool dad. You know, I'm here homeschooling teens, preparing them for college. I am reading with them three to 600 pages a week, spending three hours a week discussing with them the reading. I'm shopping, I'm cooking, I'm cleaning. I'm taking the ballerinas to ballet classes until somebody else starts driving. And still, no one comes to me for healing. Mm. They go to mom for healing. We need healing and we need our mother for that. Mm. I love that. Do you love that, Chris? <laughs> I ask because, you know, it seems that there's an association where essentially if you had a Venn diagram, the masculine, divine masculine would be over here and most males would be over here and the divine feminine would be over here and most females would be over there. And that's the way that a lot of times we process or perceive those attributes in terms of their expression in the real world. For the average guy out there, how might they envision a redemption that doesn't emasculate them. If I can just respond to your question to me, I mean, I'm not an insane camera, right? I'm not a, a complete whole human being. I have not achieved the mystery of conjunction or hieragami, right? You know, this heaven and earth thing still evades me or eludes me in some sense, right? You know, I kind of wish my kids would, you know, recognize that I could maybe heal them, but then maybe I can't, or maybe they don't know I can, and maybe that's on me. I think at this point we need Catherine's help. What do you what do you do with us, Catherine? What do you do with ourselves? Yeah, no, these are great questions. And I want to clarify it and say I love that in like any sort of value judgment. You know, like I don't know the dynamics of your particular situation and your family life, but in the sense that it is very archetypal, like that there is this very real sense that your children Assuming they're biological, they have this connection with the body of your wife, with that landscape as their first home. Beautifully put. That you shouldn't have to replicate. That's sacred and that's... Well, and that would be pointless. Yeah. It doesn't need replicating. Yeah. One is enough. Yeah. I can't add to that or take away from it. I really can't. Sure. But that doesn't mean you don't have healing power. That doesn't mean you don't have feminine aspects. That doesn't mean that... 
that isn't part of who you are, perhaps in certain moments, in certain scenarios, in certain expressions, they're built unconsciously to go to a deeper source of femininity. And that's okay. We'll have to see when my wife goes out of town for a month, then maybe they'll come to me or maybe they'll call mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I want to bring it back to this question, Catherine, of where do we go from here? I'm going to reveal again, just after having done the years of what I feel like is um, integrative shadow work to understand my ego shortcomings and my areas of growth opportunity, even then I felt somewhat wounded in reading the book because of the lexical associations I made between words like patriarchal and toxic masculinity. Even though that can be helpful to feel somewhat wounded by those things, I also want to know that there's a place that I can go from here that doesn't make of me a, a broken individual right from the start. Like We want to know that there's a possible place of arrival where we can say, I understand both the toxic and the mature. I understand both the, the masculine and the feminine. And I'm, I'm no longer wounded by that because of that understanding. But at first you have to, you have to kind of plot your course a little bit. So what does the mature masculine look like? And if it's just a folding into the mature feminine, then why distinguish these at all? I, I guess maybe one other way to frame this is the way that Ian McGilchrist did in his book, The Master and His Emissary, where he takes off the labels that would confuse us all together. And he, he says, right hemisphere, left hemisphere in referring to sort of the brain functions that are respectively belong in each one of those hemispheres, all of a sudden, a lot of that disappeared. But can you speak to this at all in terms of what do we do now? Well, there's a lot of questions in your question. So I'll, I'll start hopefully at the a beginning point, which would be with anything that feels uncomfortable, that feels painful, that you feel affronted by. For me, it's been very useful to pause and ask why. Why am I feeling these things? What is coming up in me? So there's this immediate moment where you can disconnect a bit and look at it. So think about perhaps yourself as a member of an audience and your feelings, your experience of a word or a lexicon, are the actors on a stage and you're watching something play out and you're trying to figure out the relationships and why the feelings are coming up for you. And, and you did a great job explaining a bit about how there's loaded terms. There's a lot that perhaps is very uncomfortable with certain terminology that doesn't feel efficacious or doesn't feel truthful or part of your experience. And perhaps being lumped into a group of individuals who are portrayed as being very dismissive of women or are unkind or whatever it is, is first of all, well, that's not me. Or second of all, that's not reality. So there's lots of potential reasons why men and women can have really strong feelings come up when they hear the word patriarchy specifically. And I think part of that journey is to figure out what that is for you, what that looks like for you, what that means for you, and then understand what your lived experience is. And so this is such an unfolding process, right? For women, for myself, waking up to the realities of patriarchy was a process. You know, I spent the first 30 years of my life essentially being very unaware that patriarchy was even real in the sense of not aware of it as an ideology that said that the masculine is prized above the feminine. 
I had my own individual experiences as a woman that definitely fit in that camp of like, oh, that's weird. Why was I treated that way or that, you know, and, but I didn't understand the source. I didn't understand the fabric of the societal structure. And so that was a waking up process for me. We all go through that process of waking up and it sometimes it's to degrees, right? Like it's easy to see maybe we can look at statistics. We can look at the number of women in Utah, for example, who will be sexually assaulted or raped in their lifetime. It's astounding. It's like one in three. What does that mean? Because we also know that these individuals aren't strangers. They're not someone in a dark alley. They're people that these women know. Like, what does that mean? There's a lot to unpack. I definitely want to leave people with a sense that there's hope for individuals and society. That's definitely my goal. Understanding the water we're swimming in, it's just very difficult. And the only thing I guess I could relate it to is our recent grappling with racism and understanding white privilege and understanding if that is our background as a white individual, that there's a certain power inherent in our life that we have because of how we were born and raised. And there's just degrees to which you become aware of what privilege is and, and how it has affected the way you see and navigate. And that's very individualized. And it's that part right there that you've identified that it's very individualized that creates, I think, for some people, discord because there's categories and then there's individuals, right? Yeah. And it's any kind of label that's categorical is going to cause an individual to bristle because their experience isn't going to fit within a perfect template of description, right? No, but patriarchy is everywhere, right? It's it's systemic. First and foremost, yes, it's systemic and it's so real in our LDS church in ways that unless parents are aware, young men and young women aren't fully aware of the differences and the imbalance in even having a voice in what happens and how things are organized. Patriarchy is an ideology, first and foremost for me. That's the most important thing is understanding it as believing that the masculine, the linear, all of these ideas of having a sense of control, being in power, production is more important than reproduction, just sort of those ideas can seep in in ways that sometimes we're we're not fully aware of. And so it's really just about the process of doing that root work, of going down and being self-aware and asking yourself questions. And when you do come up against your ego and you feel that, ask why and begin that work of removing yourself, looking at the ego as something separate and saying, what's going on here? What's happening? And being honest with yourself about the source of that pain. To touch on your question about the masculine and feminine, I do not believe that like the answer is men become more feminine, period. Like that's not at all, hopefully what this book is communicating The beautiful part about the image of like yin and yang is this idea that you can't have one without the other. They need each other. Who you are as an individual, whether you're on the the light or the dark, like the light has the dark inside, the dark has the light inside. So while they are sort of opposites, they're integrated by nature. Like there's a connection, there's a relationship there that's inherent And the feminine is nothing without the masculine and the masculine is nothing without the feminine. Like the power of both is that interplay, is that harmony because the feminine has been so suppressed and its very identity has been literally muted. I feel deeply this call from Heavenly Mother to understand what that is as a way to reach out 
and find healthy expressions of the masculine, which will only benefit every individual. So there's nothing wrong with being productive. There's nothing wrong with, you know, wanting a certain degree of activity. Order and predictability. Like- yeah, there's nothing inherently, of course, wrong with those things. They're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're necessary, just as there's nothing wrong with more passivity or chaos or like darkness, like all of those things are necessary. So perhaps coming into relationship with that feminine is something men and women both need. There's lots of women who have really wounded feminine sides and do not understand what the feminine is either. So this is something that can only benefit everyone. For me, like very practical applications are just following this pattern of descent and ascent, descent and ascent, and having that tree be my guide as to where I am with certain thought patterns and and cycles, but also taking that time to be contemplative. And for me, that's walking in nature, that's writing poetry, that's finding that time to allow myself to feel and to like fully express what my feelings are. As opposed to the constant doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, doing, of course, is important, right? Like it's massively important, but... In balance. Yeah, it becomes sort of arbitrary if you don't really have the deep purpose or the deep feeling behind what you're doing. Does that help, Riley? Awesome. I love it. That's great. And I think one of the things you did there is you helped to define terms a little bit, semantically speaking, so that we can come to grips with the intent behind the words. And that's so often lost to people who are emotionally invested in something like I am in many ways. And we all are. Sure. The revealing thing for me is that it's not just men who are out of balance. I mean, you yourself said in your book that you really had no conception of the divine feminine until your adulthood. Yeah. That speaks to all of our experiences and and to the systemic nature of what you're describing as patriarchy in this sense is that you know, we just grow up in, with a certain cultural inheritance that is unavoidable. And at least on the front end, right, we can work to change and work to move away from that cultural inheritance when it's damaging, but it's still there and it still informs where our starting line is in this in this race. So mm-hmm. as we wrap up, Catherine, you know, thinking again more about what do we do, right? So another practice, a contemplative practice that we mention is poetry as a practice. You said you don't know how to write a poem. Well, I have a book of of your poetry that you published. And I've heard many other poets and authors say the same thing, novelists who don't know how to write novels. To me, that says that I could practice poetry. I don't know how to write poetry either. I was inspired when I met my wife and I wrote a beautiful poem. I don't know how to do that. It just happened. But I can see the value of maybe practicing poetry, of you know, just sitting and taking the poetic point of view and maybe I'll write something, maybe I won't. Can you speak to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a definitely a contemplative practice. One thing that I learned to do early on is to just make a list of things that I see, actual physical objects that are in front of me. Maybe it's 10 things, maybe it's 20 things a day, but you're actually just seeing what's in front of you. And it's surprising how much we don't do that. (laughs) Like we're in our heads so much that we're really very unaware. You're creating sort of connection and awareness in your space. And then as you get more familiar with that process, it becomes easier to sort of write a line, write two lines about what you see. And then 
one object flows into another, one idea flows into another, and it's just very connected in that sense. What Catherine's saying reminds me, I heard my wife interviewed on the radio once about her writing, you know, as a children's book author. She quoted Hemingway. She just said, all you have to do is write one true sentence. So like you make the list, right? And then you just write, like she said, maybe you write a line. It's, you know, it's one true sentence. I love the idea that she put out that kind of brought to my mind this verbal still life because it's like mixing two uh, modes of artistic expression. And I never really thought about that until until she said it just described something in the room, you know? I mean, that's essentially like yeah. taking a photograph or or drawing a an oil painting of a, a bowl of fruit or something. I mean, it's like no different, really. I was impressed, Catherine. You know, I was reading some Rilke, some Neruda. Mm-hmm. I had read Kanausgaard's, not poetry, right? He wrote this quartet, the Four Seasons, right? Yes. And I related it to, I'd heard him interviewed saying that he just made it a, a point, an exercise to write daily about some inanimate object. And what comes out of that is poetry. I mean, it's in prose, but it's still poetry. It's beautiful. And I saw the same thing in Neruda and and Rilke when they write about socks Mm -hmm. or bees Mm -hmm. (laughs) or what have you. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. You can begin to string ideas and images together. And it really does open up your mind to make connections with the object itself, but then to have your experience and your emotions and your processes unfold as that's happening, right? Like the object is the vehicle to get to what you really want to be saying and expressing. That's not something you can control. That's just the process, which is really lovely. So I definitely recommend that. I love that. You know, it sounds like I'm on track because after I listened to and read some of this poetry out loud, I thought, okay, so I need to go to my own experience. And I'm thinking of objects that are familiar to me. I go back to the woods, by the way. I go back to the tropical rainforest, especially the tropical rainforest for me, because I have a personal experience of that that others don't. There is no tropical rainforest where we live in North America, right? So I can bring that. And I would start by talking about just the moist earth and the damp air and, you know, just the green and the trees and who knows where that leads me, right? It's just to recall my experience and to be able to put it into words. And if I can communicate any of that experience, that's poetry. Yes. Yep. You got it. Well, Catherine, this has been awesome. Super enlightening. Really glad you took the time to join us today. We'd love to have you on again. Thanks for teaching us and telling us a little bit about your work. And we hope that the listener is moved to go and check out your books. Can they purchase them online? I, I guess they're streaming now. They're all they're all in audiobook format, but uh, the physical books. Yes, they can. They are available on Amazon and, and other retailers, usually in the Utah area. So Amazon's probably the best. Okay. So again, they're the mother tree and the tree at the center, and that, the latter being mm-hmm. the book of poetry. Do you have any other, you know, anything else in the works? I have a chat book I've got out. So we'll see when that gets published, but yeah. Okay. Great. We look forward to it. And your website is katherineknightsuntag.com? Mm-hmm. It is. With two N's, right? Two N's. We'll need show notes for that. Thanks for being with us, Catherine. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you for joining us. 